in Him, the whole family, the whole new humanity is given our character from Him. That is why we are the true expression of Christ on earth. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So here in verse 15, we come across this issue in verse 15 regarding the Father and the family, from, every, from, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So I want to kind of tackle this problem. And again, our purpose today is to kind of get some preliminary things out of the way, some preliminary issues, I guess we could say, some problematic things. Look at these, understand these, and then having a good firm grasp of the prayer, we'll dive into the prayer next week. And so we've got to address this thing about God the Father as the Father of all families, of every family in the earth. Now, is God the Father of all people? Is God the Father of every family? The Scriptures emphatically teach us that no, He's not. God is not the Father of every person. God is the Creator of every person. But God is most definitely not the father of every person. In fact, the scriptures teach us that those for whom God is not their father, they have another father. As Jesus will say to the unbelieving Pharisees, he'll say, you are of your father, the devil. Why? Because your character is just like his. His character is a lying character and you're lying to me right now. Therefore, you're of your father, the devil. So God is not presented to us in the Scriptures as the Father of all people. All people are not children of God. And so here's just a word of caution for all of us, because this is a, this is a real temptation. As, and I know what this is like, to, to be speaking with people that are spiritually minded. They are showing no evidence of, of conversion or regeneration, but yet they're spiritually minded. And in your heart, you want to make a connection and the easy way to make a connection is with those phrases, we're all children of God. You've all heard them. We're all children of God. Let me caution you. That is an extremely confusing message for the world, that we're all children of God, particularly when the Scriptures teach us clearly that we are not all children of God. God is the Father of His people. God is the Father of His new humanity. God is the creator of all things. And all things look to Him as the source of their existence. But God does not give His name to all people. God gives His name to His redeemed people. So with that being said, how do we treat this passage here in which Paul says, I'm reading from the English Standard, that God is the Father from whom, I'm sorry, from whom every family on earth is named. So how do we treat that? Well, a lot's going to hinge on this word every. So let's take a look at this word every. What's going on here is Paul is making a play on words. Uh, the play on words, this happens so much in our scriptures. I mean, it happens too, too many times for me to name them all. These clever play on words, the clever usage of, of two words that sound alike, and they're put together in such a clever way. It's so unfortunate that we are not native Greek speakers reading in the native uh, 
language of the scriptures because all this, none of these plays on play on words, they never survive a translation. But Paul's making a, a clever play on words here because the word for family, it's not so in the English, but in the Greek, the word for family is a derivative of the word for father. Pater is father, patria is family. So the words are pater, pasa, patria. So Paul's making this, you can hear it there, this sort of clever play on words. Doesn't mean anything to us yet, but that's why Paul puts these three words together. The word for father, the word for family is a derivative of that, and then the word for every, that's translated every here, is the word pasa. Okay? So, aside from that, what, how do we deal with this word every? Because I believe every, not to make my own play on words there, I believe every modern translation translates it every, or all, or something like that. The King James translates it whole. So let's delve into this and let's really understand the word here is pasa. It's one of those incredibly common words used way over 600 times in the New Testament. It's just a, it's just a utility word used in so many different ways. The, the, the main, most common translation meaning of pasa is all. And so you'll see in your notes here, here's an example, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, the same word. So that's what it most commonly means. Second to that, it can mean, quite often, it can mean every, such as in John 15, verse 2. Every branch that in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Okay? So those are very common usages of the word. But there's another use that's not as common, but is completely legitimate. It's a completely legitimate translation, and that is the, the translation of whole or entirety. That's what the King James follows. So the King James translates it the, the whole families of the earth or the entirety. So that is a much better translation. And now let me just tell you why so that you're not just sort of taking my word for this. First of all, let's take a look at how Paul uses this elsewhere. First of all, here's some, here's some examples in some other contexts. Matthew 8, verse 32, Jesus said to them, this is the instance of the, the demon being cast out into the pigs. Go, says Jesus. So they came out and went to the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank. Or Acts 20, verse 27, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Or Colossians 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Okay. Now, in the context of Ephesians, Paul was going to use a similar construction. In fact, not, not similar, the identical construction, just a few verses earlier. If you look up to chapter 2 and verse 21, chapter 2 and verse 21, in whom the whole structure, there's the same word, whole structure. So let's think about this. The whole structure. The whole structure doesn't mean every single structure. What's the structure Paul is talking about? He's talking about the structure of the new humanity, the new people of God, the new true Israel. So he's not saying every people in the world. He's not saying every group of people there is. He's saying this structure of people, the whole thing, all of it is the new humanity. He uses the same identical construction here to say the same thing. Paul's not speaking of every family that lives, every human family in existence. He's speaking of the whole new humanity, once again. So think about the flow of Paul's thought. From chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul has been talking about nothing else than one new people in Christ. In Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, in whom 
over and over and over again, he's talked about one access to the Father through one Spirit. He has talked about one people of God. There used to be a different people. They used to be following the God of this age. They used to be dead in their sins and trespasses. But now they're a new people, a new people who have access to the Father through one Spirit. This is what Paul has been talking about for three chapters now. For Paul to suddenly, out of the blue, start talking about every family on the earth calling God the Father would have no context behind it, would have no relevance, would have no connection to anything Paul says. So I'm baffled as to why the modern translations go with every. The King James in this instance nails it because this is what Paul's talking about. In God, in the Father, everyone, the whole entirety, the the summation, the whole new humanity is named by Him. We'll talk about the naming in just a minute. But we get our name from Him. The new humanity gets its name from the Father. Okay, so again, just caution us. So it gets using that type of language too flagrantly, too easily, the language that all of us are the children of God. All of us are created by God, but He has one family. Okay, so now, Verse 15 again, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So just a word about the naming there. And then we'll just have a word or two about the beginning of verse 16. Then we'll be done for this morning. So the naming, we know that in scripture, naming is more than just giving somebody a handle. We know that in scripture, naming means uh, dominion. There's some notes in your in your uh, there's some scripture in your notes that refer back to creation, that talks about the naming of the animals, how God names the day and the night, God names the stars, and then the animals are brought before Adam for him to name them. We talk, uh, there's some scriptures in there about Jacob's renaming to Israel, about Nabob and his name, and how, how all this is connected together with both dominion and character. In the scriptures, when one is named, that, that shows dominion over And it shows the giving of character. When a name is given, that's the giving of character. That's the designating of one's character. Jesus says to Peter, I say to you, on this rock, I will build my church and your name is Peter. Or God says to Jacob, whose name was scoundrel or conniver or thief. He says to you, your name is Israel. One who prevails with God, right? El. Israel, God. So the naming is a giving of character or a designation of character. So in him, the whole family, the whole new humanity is given our character from him. That is why we are the true expression of Christ on earth. We are the true expression of Christ on earth because we have his character. He has named us and he has given to us his character in the naming of his people. Okay, so more could be said about that, but I just want to quickly talk just for a moment and then we'll be done at the beginning of verse 16. Beginning of verse 16, we're not going to get into the prayer yet, but I just want to address real quickly how the prayer is going to begin. Verse 16, that or in order in order that that according to the riches of his glory. So that's as far as we'll go right there. The riches of his glory. So Paul is going to base this prayer on the riches of His glory. The riches of the glory of God are the basis for what Paul is going to ask for. 
Now, the riches, we've talked about that a number of times because this is now, I think, the third time Paul's used that word. So riches is the standard word for wealth. It's communicating to us an excess of resources. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This unlimited, unsearchable riches, unsearchable blessing, unsearchable spiritual resources. Okay, so that's the riches, the riches of His glory. What's that mean? The glory of God in this context speaks to us of the entire substance of how God has revealed Himself to us to be. What, what it means to be God. The entirety of the Godhead as He's revealed it to us in this context, that's the glory of God. So this rich, unsearchable, unlimited wealth, overabundance of spiritual resources that are God's, that are also ours. Because again, chapter 1, verse 3 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours in Christ. So do you know that you own everything God owns? And that's rather staggering. But that's what the Scriptures say. Every thing is ours in Christ. All that's God's is ours. That's what it means to be co-heirs of the kingdom. So that is the basis that Paul is going to found his prayer on. The riches of his glory. But now notice what he says, according to the riches of his glory. There is a vast, vast difference between Paul basing his prayer on the blessing of God out of the riches of His glory as opposed to according to the riches of His glory. So what's the difference between out of His riches and according to His riches? Well, put it this way. If if I went and asked some wealthy person, uh, I'm, I'm really down on my luck. Can you give me some money? And this wealthy person says to me, okay, here's 20 bucks and gives me $20. I mean, $20, $20. But if the man owns $20 million, then what he's given me is nothing in comparison to what he has. Still a gift, still appreciated, but in comparison to what he has, it's incomparable. That would be giving me something out of his wealth. But on the other hand, if I said to this rich individual, you know, I'm really down on my luck and um, I'm a nice guy. Uh, Can you help me out? And he says to me, I will give you 20% of everything I own. That's quite a different thing. That's giving according to his wealth. Or another way to think of it is in proportion to his wealth. Okay, so you see the vast difference between Paul praying that God would give this blessing, give this power that we're going to talk about, out of his riches, as opposed to according to his riches. The unsearchable, unlimited, boundless riches of his glory, Paul asks the Father to grant this prayer that he's going to pray based upon a portion an appropriate portion of the entire kingdom. That is a a vast difference from God blessing out 
of his wealth, out of his riches, out of his glory, instead blessing in accordance with. And here's the point to get. Paul is teaching us here as we pray and we ask God for this spiritual request. He's teaching us that we ask God for these things, not as the destitute one who needs sustenance, but we ask as the blessed one who's asking for blessing. We are not the destitute ones asking that God would just give give us a meager little sustenance, just a little bit like the Syrophoenician woman, just a crumb from your table, God. That's not what Paul's asking for. He's going to finish in the doxology and say, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than anything we ask or even imagine. So Paul is saying to us, I am making this request, God. Grant this request in proportion to the entirety of your unsearchable riches and glory. You ever read David Copperfield? Anybody read that? Remember David Copperfield, the little orphan boy who's in the orphanage and they're all, all of his stories, the, the orphanage is real abusive to the little boys. And so he's this little David Copperfield boy and they don't get enough to eat. They got this one little bowl and David Copperfield in his brashness goes up and says, uh, yeah, anybody, somebody want to do a British accent? May I have, yeah, there you go. Please, sir, may I have some more? That's a destitute person asking for just a little bit of sustenance. Just a little bit of sustenance. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is saying we are the blessed ones asking for this great blessing. And that is how we are to think of ourselves as we go before the Father. Not as this poor, meager, little beggar Christian. Oh God, just give me just... Can you see it in your heart to give me just this one little blessing? I promise I'll be happy with it. He wants us to see ourselves as the ones who are co-heirs of his entire kingdom. So here's an analogy that will hopefully sort of drive it home. Let me um, pick on somebody who has a son. I'm going to pick on the churches. I thought about you, but you don't have any sons. I'm going to pick on the churches. Okay, let's say, for example, I get in trouble with the law. I commit a violent crime. Let's say I commit a murder and the police are on my trail. And I come to the churches and I say, please help me out. You got to help me out. Can you do this for me? You got a son, Chaston. He kind of looks like me. We're, We're close to the same age. Give or take 20 years. Can you tell the police that Chaston did this and not me? Let's say they agree. And they say, okay. And they do that. Let's take it further. Let's say I'm in trouble with the law. I committed a murder. And they come to me. And they say, you know what? Our son Chaston looks a lot like you. Why don't we tell the police that Chaston did it? Let's take it one step further. Let's say that Chaston is there and says, let me do this for you. 
I'll tell the police I did this. And I say, okay. And that's what they do. They arrest Chaston, take him away. But then in the course of events, they figure out, no, he didn't do this. And so they release him. Charges are dropped. And so he's released. Now, the following Sunday, I'm eating lunch at the, ch- at the church's home. Is that today or next Sunday? I'm eating lunch at the church's home. And we're all sitting around the table. Chaston's there. And here comes the cream potatoes. And I say, Donna, can I have some potatoes? Yes. And I take a little bit of spoonful and put it on a plate. And I say, Donna, can I have a second spoon of potatoes? You see what I'm driving at? We gave our son for you. He gave himself for you. Do you think that we are going to begrudge a spoonful of mashed potatoes? How will he who did not spare his own son... How will he deny any good thing for his people? If the giving of the Son is the standard, if that is what shows us this is the measure of God's love, then how can we come before him as little David Copperfields? Please, Father, give me this one. Can I just have this one little thing? I think perhaps we offend His grace when we think of ourselves as just poor, destitute beggars. And yes, apart from Christ, we're worse than that. But in Christ, Paul says, do this for them, Father. Do this for them in accordance with the unsearchable riches of your glory. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.